I, I think the keynote speakers have been going first in the evening lineups, uh, Andrew. Um, but thanks for thanks for giving me the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Andrew said I, uh, that there's this book coming out in the spring, and uh, I wrote on the book of Judges as well as an, another book. And um, it's one of those books you're probably not going to do for children's church, I realized. <laughs> I started counting up the weapons that are used in the book of Judges. There's a, a custom-made clandestine sword. There's an ox goad, which is a cattle prod. There's a tent peg and a mallet. There's a, a lamps and trumpets and... Uh, and burning foxes, and uh, you just go down the list. Uh, uh, it's an odd way to do missions. Uh, <laughs> but um, tonight, I want us to return to John chapter 4, as we did last night. Um, and so if you weren't here last night, and uh, I'll, I'll give it just a little recap in a moment. Uh, but because we spent so much time looking at John 4 last night, we'll only look at certain parts of it tonight. That's the famous passage about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, to give us a, a, a context for what we're doing tonight... Oh, and by the way, the, the, there is a recording of last night, if you missed last night, that you can access at some point. Andrew will give you the... Uh, we'll make known the way to do that um, when it's available. So there's this guy who's cast away on a desert island for a period of a few years. And he has to make do because it's several years before he's rescued. But finally when he's rescued, uh, his rescuers come ashore. And he is obviously very excited to see them. But he's also very excited to tell them about the life he made for himself while he was waiting rescue. And so he takes them and shows them this hut that he had made for his, for his shelter, where he could sleep at night and stay out of the sun on the day. And then he took them to show a little hut that he had made to be sort of a stable for wild goats that he had rounded up and kept in a pen. And then he was extremely excited to show them a little hut that he'd made for his church. Because every Lord's Day, he would go to that other hut and spend the morning and then come back in the evening and have his own little worship service. Well, the rescuers were suitably impressed with what he had done and shared his enthusiasm for it. But then they asked him, what's that fourth hut over there? And he says, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> And I can tell that you know, as well as I do, that that hits way too close to home. Um, we even have a word in the, in the States, don't we, a term for it. We, we have a term uh, that we use to describe looking for the right church or the best church. We call it church shopping, uh, as if... Um, uh, we're going to the supermarket to find a church. Well, the Samaritan woman, she asks the church question. In verse 20, 
She said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim, the mountain in the northern part of Israel that had become the alternative place to worship during the, device, during the days of the divided monarchy. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Deuteronomy 12, God said through Moses that he would choose a place for his name to dwell. And when King Solomon dedicated the temple, he referred to that. He said, until now, Lord, you have not chosen a place for your name to dwell. But at the dedication of the temple there in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, God dwells on Mount Zion. He dwells in Jerusalem in the temple that he had instructed and enabled Solomon to build. The woman asks the church question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So she's putting forward to him the whole dilemma, the, what epitomized the breakdown between Samaritan and Jew. She's asking the church question. Where is the best church? Where is the truest church? Where is the right place to worship God? And Jesus answers her implicit question. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. We would expect then after that statement by Jesus for him to explain where the right place is. To worship God. And Jesus tells us. The hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And I told you last night that S spirit should be capitalized there. See Jesus is announcing to this woman. That there will be a new place. Where both Samaritans and Jews will worship God together. And Paul goes on, particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, to tell us that that one place is not just where Samaritans and Jews will worship, but it's where Gentiles will worship as well. Because Jesus is not only introducing her to the Spirit, which will give life like living water that will come out of her. He's telling there is a new age that has come where there will be a new temple a temple of the Spirit of God in which all nations will worship God. And so I want us to take this evening, uh, just in about 20 or 25 minutes worth of time, to show you how the worship that we encounter in the story of Jesus is expansively universal. Last night, we looked at how it is intensely personal. Tonight, we're going to look at how it is expansively universal. Last night, we looked at the woman as an individual meeting Jesus. And we know from the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14, that when people met Jesus, they met the glory of God. Because the glory of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word for dwell there is a word that, it's a, it's a verb that has the word tent in it. So sometimes you've heard people say that in Jesus God tented or tabernacled 
among us. So the way God dwelled in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, he had now come in the person of Jesus Christ. It was the glory of God in the midst of Israel. Jesus, the person. And we said last night that missions has to begin with this intensely personal encounter with the glory of God. That's where you and I have to begin when we think about missions. We don't go out for any other reason except that we have met the one who has living water and who has given us life. If we go for any other reason, we're only doing what the United Nations and all the NGOs of the world do. But we go because we have met Christ. And having met Christ must be not just the message, but the motivation and the means of going. All missions must trace, to, trace its wellhead to the person of Christ. And freeing people, as Jesus did this woman, from the broken cisterns, from the wells which leak, from the things we dig in life that we depend upon, that we look to, that we brag about, that we claim our heritage on, that we claim even before God to be our spirituality, all other wells leak. But the living water which springs up within us because of the gift of Jesus is the power for mission. And so the gospel is intensely personal, but Jesus isn't simply delivering a personal evangelistic message to this woman. He's announcing that the gospel is also expansively universal. That there is now a time that's come when it's not simply Jews worshiping in Jerusalem and others worshiping whatever their fathers, forefathers had worshiped, but it is a time of the Spirit in which all nations worship in the Spirit of God in Christ. So we're going to look at that this morning. Everyone must meet Jesus personally, alone, if you will. But no one who meets Jesus can remain alone. Because if we're united to Christ by faith, we are ipso facto united to one another. And not just united to one another here at Spruce Creek Presbyterian Church. We are one with every believer in Jesus Christ around the whole world. Those who have already professed him, as well as those for whom Christ died 2,000 years ago, who have yet to hear about him. The gospel is intensely personal, yet it is expansively universal. So here's the summary of what I want us to see from this episode between Jesus and the woman in terms of its universality. God the Father is a God who seeks worshipers. Last night we talked about how remarkable that is. I think of Paul standing at Mars Hill and looking at the city. He beheld the city full of idols and his heart was stirred up in him. And there was one temple that said the temple to the unknown God. And he said I want to let you know who that unknown God is. And he declares that unknown God is the God of all gods, the supreme God, the one who is sovereign over all, who wants to be found. But Jesus says it a different way, that God the Father seeks worshipers. God the Father is a God who seeks worshipers. He seeks those worshipers in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. The woman said, when Messiah comes, he will make all things known. Jesus said, he's here. 
He said, I am, right? He seeks, those who wor- he seeks those worshipers in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the work of God the Spirit. John chapter 4 is a wonderfully Trinitarian passage in the Bible. The Father seeks worshipers and He has sent the Son. And the Son offers the life-giving Spirit so that we can worship the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working in perfect concert with one another to achieve that great end of Psalm 96, declare your glory among the nations. And those worshipers are to display the transforming and uniting power of the Spirit by their unity and love. The worshipers the Father seeks through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit are to display the glory of God in their unity and love. And we'll talk more about that as an application toward the end. Well, let's look at the particulars of this to see how this thesis is borne out. The hour now is tells us that the Father seeks worshipers. You know, this is really a story that begins with creation. God existed in His heavenly throne. He existed among the angels. He was worshipped and glorified among the angels. But He creates the visible world in order to establish a sanctuary for Himself. He created a sanctuary in Eden. Uh, the, the Garden of Eden, its description is a lot like temple building in the ancient world. We're supposed to read Genesis 1 as if God is building in the creation a temple for Himself. And He appoints priests over that temple. Adam and Eve, in His image, as priests in the ancient world were believed to be, in the image of the God. And they were given the garden in order to guard it and serve it. Not to farm it, but to treat it like priests treated temples. But Adam and Eve were unfaithful in their priestly work. We know that story and we know God then gave a promise that He would send somebody to undo the damage and to redeem the world. The story of God's temple is somewhat quiet for untold years uh, until the time of Abraham. When God said to Abraham, go to the place I will show you. I will make your name great. And then the next thing God said to him is the whole fountain of Christian mission. He said, through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That Abraham wasn't simply called to be blessed, but he was called to bless the nations. It was God's plan through one man and his descendants to bless the nations of the world. So we don't wait until Jesus rises from the dead to go therefore into all the world. Abraham had a mission, and that mission is expanded in the nation of Israel. God, if you read about the Exodus, God is doing this on the world stage. I've been checking my at-bat, my M Major League Baseball app, when I have had a chance this evening to see how the Cardinals and the Cubs are doing. Can you imagine the World Series being played with no one in the stands? It can still be an excellent game, but what will be the point? If God's purpose in the world is to be worshipped, He redeems His people from slavery in, in Egypt before the world. 
The nations see what he has done to break the power of the gods and to show his own faithfulness and commitment to his people. Isn't that how uh, Rahab welcomed the spies? She said, I've heard, I've heard what your God did in Egypt. See, God does things so that the world sees what he does so that they will worship him. And yet his, his people were not faithful to be a light to the nations. That was the calling of Israel, to be a light to the nations. Ultimately, they failed in that, that mission. But God sent a true son, a true Israel, one who could keep covenant, Jesus Christ, to fulfill God's mission. So Jesus isn't just popping up on the stage of world history out of nowhere. In fact, if you want to read the, the Gospel of John wisely, assume there is nothing new in John's Gospel except the person of Jesus. Everything is coming out of the Old Testament. It begins with what? In the beginning. There's a new creation happening. And the, the Word of God becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. There's a new tabernacle being built. In fact, in, John, in the second chapter of John, Jesus first gets himself in trouble. In uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it, it's reported at the end. Um, it's not clear whether that's a separate incident that John just chooses to report earlier, or whether there are two different incidents, but it's Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus finds the money changers and... Uh, who are, are profiting uh, from uh, the worship at the temple, he drives them out. And in John chapter 2, verse 18, we're told, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What's your authority to come in here and clean house in the temple? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, it took Herod the Great 40 years to build this temple. It was actually an add-on to the temple you read about in Haggai and Zechariah and, and uh, Nehemiah. But it was, it was massive and expansive. And they assumed he was talking about the, 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 the temple that Herod built. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had spoken, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's the background to the woman at the well. She says, on Gerizim or in Jerusalem, he says, right here. Because John chapter 1 verse 14 already told us that the glory of God was dwelling in this man, Jesus Christ. As the God-man, he is the tabernacle of God. And when he says he is the temple that will be torn down and raised on the third day, he's speaking of himself. And so when the Samaritan woman says, where's the right place to worship God? He says, right here with me. That in the risen Christ, there is where true worship is to be found. She 
She asks the worship question, and Jesus answers the worship question. He doesn't say, you need some traditional hymns that have theological integrity. And you need some new songs, because Psalm 98 says, sing some new songs. And uh, you need to raise your hands, at least to your waists, if you're a Presbyterian. (laughs) All the things that we talk about when we talk about worship, which are not unimportant questions, uh, at least some of them aren't, he answers the, the most important question in me. Because it is in him that Paul tells us the dividing wall has been broken down. In the, in the rending of the flesh of Christ, the wall that separated God's covenant people, the Jews, from the Gentiles, from the nations, has been removed. And there is now one people of God because there is one temple of God. That hour has come. Jesus is the new and final temple. The cross will render the temple obsolete. Edmund Clowney, the name some of you know, in a wonderful article entitled The Final Temple, said that salvation is of the Jews not because the temple is in Jerusalem, but because the Messiah is in Sychar, sitting on the curbing of the well. Salvation is of the Jews not because of a temple in Jerusalem, but because Jesus, the seed of Abraham, has now been manifested so that the promise of God can be fulfilled. And that temple is the Spirit, capital S, The hour is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In in a material way, yes, Jesus has ascended to the Father. That's a very important doctrine, by the way. But at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you always. Now, which is it? And we have to always remember that even as Jesus has bodily ascended, He is present among us because He sent the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ. And so the church on earth has union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest rest is one because the Spirit of Christ that makes us one with Him also makes us one with one another. Dr. Clowney, in his wise ways, um, don't have the quote here in front of me, but he, he says this, and I, I say this with uh, gent- I, tr- I hope with gentleness, uh, because there are many people preoccupied today with when will the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. And even the way American Christians are preoccupied with this question has actually affected American foreign policy and therefore affected uh, the prospects of peace in the Middle East. And it's a, a, and I'm, I'm not attempting to speak to politics here tonight, but I simply want to make clear what Jesus is saying here. The temple was rebuilt on the third day. 
And Dr. Clowney says we shouldn't send people back to a stone temple because the temple of the Spirit has been built. When Solomon prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8, he said, uh, maybe I'll read it instead of trying to quote it. Anybody here remember Watergate hearings? Uh, Sam Irvin, who often quoted scripture, said something to John Ehrlichman out of the Bible, and John Ehrlichman said, Senator, I read the Bible, I just don't quote the Bible. Uh, let me um, make sure I get Solomon's words as he said them. Beautiful prayer. O Lord God of Israel, this is 1 Kings 8, 22. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built... Solomon knew that a stone temple could not contain the God of the universe. That whatever dwelling God would make in a stone temple was simply pointing forward to something greater. And Stephen in his speech in Acts chapter 7 refers to this. Because what Stephen accused of before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. He's a follower of Jesus. And Stephen has been saying that Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. That was the chief accusation against Stephen, that he was speaking against the stone temple. And Stephen goes right back to Abraham and says, look, God has been with his people for centuries. And for a little while there, he was in a stone temple. That was just one way of God doing things, but now he's done something better, that he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And here's where I think, and I've, I've been working in Gospels pretty hard for the last 10 or 15 years. You know, we often say the Pharisees, their problem was legalism. They set the bar higher than anybody could reach, but high enough for them to reach. But no bar was high enough to really reach God's bar. And that is true. But I don't think the Pharisees' biggest problem was legalism. And reading the Gospels over and over and studying them, I think the, the Pharisees' biggest problem was exclusivism. They were confounded that unclean and lame and non-Jewish Romans and Syrophoenician women and demon-possessed people from Galilee and all kinds of other people were experiencing the grace of God. A young lawyer asked Jesus, Who's, what are the great commandments? Jesus said, love God, love neighbor. The whole law is summed up in this. And uh, the, the lawyer said, well, who's my neighbor? But Jesus told a story. And it was a story of the Good Samaritan. A priest came by, found the beaten man, 
And you know, if you, if you come in contact with a bloodied person in those circumstances, that's, that, a priest is going to have to clean himself up for several days before he can go back to work. He couldn't help the man because he was on his way to priestly service. And the Levite came by, and the same thing presented itself with the Levite. If the Levite helped the man, he would be unclean for priestly service as a Levite. So who proved to be the neighbor? The Samaritan. An unclean man by birth. He was the one who understood the law of Moses best. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, didn't understand this. That's in chapter 3, right before the story of the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus didn't understand that you must be born of the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. The teacher of Israel didn't understand, but the Samaritan woman received the news with gladness and told everyone she could. And so what we see in the end of Jesus' work, and again I quote Dr. Clowney, proud Israel was left a sanctuary without the glory, but humbled Israel found a sanctuary in the glory. That in 70 AD that stone temple was torn down because it was obsolete. Because the glory of God in the flesh of Jesus Christ had, had been raised from the dead and the Spirit sent at Pentecost and now there was a temple that transcended anything imaginable that stones could make. The religious leaders were like my dogs are sometimes. You ever try to point out something to a dog? Look, we have two pugs. How many do you have? Oh, just one? Oh. Pug owners are, need help. They... But, but yeah, but if you point, if you say to your dog, our dogs are, Daz, are Dolly and Mamie, uh, Broadway um, characters. If you point something out to a dog, what does the dog look at? Yeah, it's your fingertip. <laughs> and so the, the, the religious leaders, and uh, we, we do the same things. We'll talk about how we do the same thing. The religious leaders looked at the sign instead of what the sign pointed to. And now the real thing has come. So think about how the New Testament moves on from here. This is why it's such a big deal in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jews at Pentecost, but then it comes on Gentiles in Cornelius' house. How can this be? That the glory of God is dwelling in people who are unclean by birth. It's because the dividing wall, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, has been torn down. Therefore, Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in the world and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is why we do missions. Because Christ was raised from the dead for an all-nations church. An all-nations temple of the Spirit. This is one of Jesus' great complaints against the religious leaders. In Isaiah 56, God says, or had said through the prophet Isaiah, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenants, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Do you hear that? The foreigner and the eunuch. People who would not be permitted in the stone temple of Jerusalem are being given a place in God's house. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps my Sabbath and does not profane it and who holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the, the, the lawsuit that Jesus brings against the priest. He comes into the temple. He says, something greater than the temple is here. In Matthew 11, he's referring to himself. He comes in as the, the one who has rights over the temple because it's his house. Jehovah has come into his temple. Luke's gospel starts that way with Jesus being brought into the temple as an infant. He comes when he's 12 years old and he says, Did you not think I'd be in my father's house when his mother and father are looking for him? He comes to Jerusalem, and during the, what we call Holy Week, he stayed outside the temple. From the Mount of Olives, he came in to teach every day because the Lord was coming into his temple, and the temple must be ready to receive the Lord. But when he comes in, he finds it a den of thieves. And he says, you have made into a den of thieves a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what God was doing from the very beginning, whether it was in Eden, before the fall, or even after. Now, through Christ, He's making a house of prayer for all nations. But a house like that can't, a house can't be made of stone and fit the nations. So God provides a dwelling place for the nations in Him by the Spirit. The Spirit is our dwelling place. The Spirit is where the freedom of God is. The Spirit is where believers are united to one another. And Peter knows this. Peter knows that stones, igneous, metamorphic, or sedimentary, my wife is a science teacher, <laughs> that stones, stones can't hold the Spirit of God. And so he says to the church of the diaspora, you are living stones being built together into a spiritual house for God. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, words right out of the book of Exodus, applied to the Jewish Gentile church. 
so that you may so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There you have a church which is a temple but not made out of stone stones but out of living stones. And this is why Paul can so easily say in 1 Corinthians 6, you are a temple what? Of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God the Spirit through the work of the Son and the mission of the Father. Jesus didn't just give the Samaritan woman the Holy Spirit so she could have her spiritual thirst quenched. It does that. Jesus was doing what the prophet Ezekiel said would happen one day. Ezekiel chapter 47, and we'll look at that a little bit more tomorrow morning when we talk about fishing. But in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel was shown what God would one day do by rebuilding Jerusalem. And he has an angel showing him what God would do. And Ezekiel 47 says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. God was going to build a temple out of which water would flow. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. This is a, a stream that is getting wider and deeper as it flows. It's counterintuitive. Why? Because it is a stream which is flowing from the temple of God. It is the living water. Ezekiel goes on to say, Then he led me back to the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. Trees in bloom, like Psalm 1 talks about. Trees that will never cease bearing fruit. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. This is a river that can make the salt seas into fresh water. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. Living water. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God said when God restores the fortunes of his people, a, a flow of water would begin to flow out of the new temple that he would build. And that flow of water would be living water that would never cease to flow. And by the well in Samaria, Jesus announced that day had come. When you look at all those slides that Carol showed us or, or that, um, that Rob showed us last night. We are one with everyone you saw by the Spirit's work. And we are one without distinction because there is in Christ neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, 
male nor female. Isn't it powerful to think about how the gospel is liberating women in traditional societies from some of the cruel and abusive practices that, that, they, that they have lived under for centuries? And this living water is the basis for mission because we really are simply building a worldwide temple of the Spirit by calling men and women, boys and girls, to faith in Christ. You see that in the book of Revelation, don't you? Worthy are you to receive power and honor and glory and honor and strength. And John says, and I saw a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation saying, worthy are you, O Lord, and worthy is the Lamb to receive honor and glory and might. Because God is through the Spirit, building a global temple of the Spirit where every tribe and tongue and people will worship Him, will worship him in the bond of the Spirit's unity. What are some ways in which we don't fully comprehend this reality? I just think of a couple real quick and for you to contemplate as we head into tomorrow. You know, I think of the Samaritan woman, uh, and I think of how when I see certain kinds of people on the news, on the streets, that I automatically categorize them. Uh, either because they are morally inferior or so distant from the gospel that they could not possibly be ones for whom Christ died. And Jesus does the unthinkable when he reveals himself as Messiah for the first time to a Samaritan. One of the great things that's happening if you raise your eyes and look around the world, and Philip Jenkins has written about this, a number of books about the global south, and how the majority world is where the church is growing at dramatic rates. One of the great things uh, for me as a Middle Western white accountant boy <laughs> is to look and see, hey, the church of Jesus Christ and the future of the gospel doesn't depend on me as an American. <laughs> and I don't need to act as if it does. I need to rejoice at what God is doing and begin to realize how I've dug my own leaky cisterns and how my own gospel is Americanized and culturized and raceized and every other way in which we shape the gospel to our own image rather than God's image. You know, idolatry isn't just worshiping gods by other names. At the foot of Sinai, Israel made a god, and they called it Jehovah, and it was in the image of two Egyptian bull gods. You see, idolatry is worshiping the God of the Bible other than he is. And the challenge of this mercy upon the Samaritan woman and this, this, this one people made, out of one, made through the one spirit is for us to begin to see how our own gospel is shaped by our culture rather than by 
Christ. And so that we can begin to look at others differently than we do than 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 we do when we look upon the, uh, with the eyes of the Pharisees, with exclusivist eyes. The other is to realize that it's not just people of other nations that are of the interest of the mission of God, but mission begins at home. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But I remember a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine. Uh, for many years, this husband and wife were the chairman of his mission committee, and they had an extremely lively worship, I mean, missions program at, at this pastor's church. And uh, I think they gave something between 20 and 25% of their annual church budget to foreign missions. And uh, the husband and wife called my friend one day after he had no longer pastored there, and they said, you know, it's, things are really getting tough down here. This was in Clearwater. Could have been anywhere. They said the neighborhood's changing. You know, uh, it's really not like it used to be. Uh, we really don't like how our community is changing. And my pastor friend said, sounds like a mission field. And this couple said, we want the mission field to be over there, not here. And one of the great stories of the last 20 or 30 years as the world is coming to us. United, the United States is the most multinational country in the world. I think New York City would be the most multinational country in the world, even by itself. Every language spoken uh, of a recognized United Nations nations is spoken in the United States by significant populations of people. I think we need to learn Mandarin. If, if it's a majority language in heaven, why the three billion Chinese Christians are going to probably vote. Um, and if you've ever worshipped among uh, people of other languages uh, and been shared in the blessing of that, uh, you can even anticipate with, uh, with joy that. God is a father who seeks worshipers. And he seeks those worshipers in and through his son, Jesus Christ, by the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's what missions is all about. And all we have to do is turn to the last page of the Bible to see that. And I'll leave you with that. You won't have to come over here on Taylor Road in the new heavens and earth. In Revelation 21... And 22, John is seeing the new heavens and earth. The time when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, where people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will gather around the throne of the Lamb and the Lord in the temple of the Spirit. And John sees in Revelation 21, verses 22 and following, And I saw... No temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God in us, we in him, for all eternity. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. And that's what's happening right now. We are progressing. We're moving toward that city. I just got this email today, and I'll finish with a couple, just one short missionary story. I received this email from a friend with his wife and two children living in Beirut, Americans. There, because of the, 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 day, the hour has come when God is seeking worshipers. In September, we had a group come for a short medical trip. They brought five doctors and one dentist from the U.S. and Egypt. We set, up, we set the church up, the building, like a temporary clinic. And in the course of two days, they saw at least 330 needy people, mostly from Syria. You see, there are several hundred thousand Syrian refugees living in Lebanon right now although some were Palestinians and Lebanese. While admittedly a lot of work, the benefits far outweighed anything else, and we were exhausted, but encouraged when the whole thing was over. To watch others come in and give of their time, knowledge, and hearts to our people was a real blessing to us, and we know it was a blessing to the community as well. A reporter came and looked around with a shocked expression, saying to our pastor, that he expected a church would be serving only Christians. But looking around, he saw mostly covered women. One missiologist has said this about the early church, and this is the last thing I'll share before we conclude for the evening. A second or third century Christian responds to a person hostile to the gospel that beauty of life encourages strangers to join their rank. We do not preach great things, but we live them. Even the enemies of Christianity conceded there was an attractive power in the distinctive communal lives of the early church. What was the content of this exemplary life? The early church broke down the barriers that had been erected in the Roman Empire between rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, Greek and barbarian, creating a confounding sociological impossibility. All kinds of different people being one. A potent gospel of love and charity was exercised toward the poor, orphans, widows, sick, minors, prisoners, slaves, and travels. The exemplary moral lives of ordinary Christians stood out against the rampant immorality of Rome. Their hope, joy, and confidence shone brightly in the midst of the despair, anxiety, and uncertainty that characterized a crumbling empire. Do you feel like you're living in a crumbling empire? It's just the lights being dimmed so the bright light can shine. Christian unity stood in sharp contrast to the fragmentation and pluralism of Rome. 
Christians exhibited chastity, marital faithfulness, and self-control in the midst of a decadent, sex-saturated empire. Generosity with possessions and resources, along with simple lifestyles, marked their lives in a world dominated by accumulation and consummation and consumption. Forgiving love toward each other and toward their enemies witness to the power of the gospel. The lives of the believing community nursed and shaped by the biblical story enabled them to live as resident aliens, as lights in a dark world. In the cultural context of the Roman Empire, their contrary values led to a contrary image of community that was attractive. A church of all kinds of people brought together by the Spirit of God to be one in Christ. That is the fuel, as Andrew was talking about, the fuel for mission earlier. That is the fuel for mission. We can begin our mission right here by this kind of life to be the light that the dark world needs. Let's pray. God, we ask you to help us find our way and what our particular calling is to be. Is it to go? Is it to enable others to go? Uh, But for all of us, God, we pray that you would help us be the light by our lives, by our common love for one another, by our simplicity in the midst of a world of consumption, by our faithfulness in the midst of a world of decadence, by our truthfulness in a world of deceit and spin, by our joy and trust in a sovereign God in the midst of a world entangled in conflict and rhetoric and perpetual disagreements. Lord, help us to be that light here at Spruce Creek Presbyterian Church and help us to be one in the Spirit so that the world can know that we are your disciples. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.